good to be with you. Uh, this morning, I want to start uh, with um, a call out to uh, the North Star Network. This is uh, the network that we're part of as this church. I uh, want to just say a, a couple things by way of announcement, and then one that pivots into what we're talking about today. Um, so uh, as most of you, I think, know that we uh, as a church uh, give annually uh, to the North Star Network uh, and that we have partnered with them because uh, they partner with lots of churches uh, in this area. There are a few things to note. Uh, we've um, been given a, a few grants uh, from them over the course of this year uh, that um, have been tremendously helpful uh, to us. And so, for example, we have a, an Afghan ministry that we've been doing that, again, most of us know about that they've uh, given us uh, some grant money toward. Uh, they've given us some grant money um, to, uh, to send our youth to Centricid or some of our youth to Centricid this year uh, as part of like a leadership opportunity uh, for our youth to help with the kids. Uh, this is something that Paige Turner has been uh, tremendous at and, and frankly is genius. We say here at uh, South Run that we are, uh, that one of our values is family. And um, in a good family, you've got older kids helping younger kids, right? Or sometimes you do anyway. And uh, this is one of these ways in which we, we're connecting uh, our youth and our kids together. Um, and it gives the kids an opportunity to see the big, the big kids uh, doing some cool stuff. And it gives the big kids the opportunity uh, to minister to, to, to influence, to help with uh, the younger kids. And so this is just one more way um, that North Star has been helping us. Um, the, a couple of, actually, there's a few things. Uh, they, they help me uh, quite a bit, actually. They uh, offer pastoral support um, in a variety of different ways, uh, whether that's uh, groups that they offer, there's meetings that we have in which I attend, and uh, I learn kind of the, the state of the art as to how to pastor or how to lead a church or uh, whatever might be happening. Um, they're sending uh, me to a leadership conference in August for a couple days, which is wonderful at uh, Willow Creek. The, uh, the Global Leadership Summit is happening there, and uh, there's a few of us from the North Star Network going uh, then. And so they're doing quite a lot to help us. So one way in which I've been able to give back is I am now part of their ordination team. Uh, and so when there is an ordination council to be called, and we've actually done this uh, with our church, uh, with C.J. Irvin a few years ago and with Jordan Sechrist a few years ago, we, we, we got an ordination council together. Uh, we met at the North Star Network site and um, we, um, if, if you don't know how these go, it's, it's a time of, of, of questioning. Uh, it's a time of like eliciting uh, questions, probably most pertinent, which is, when were you called into ministry? And what did that call, what was that call like, right? And how did that happen in your life? And... Um, and so a couple weeks ago, I got the honor to be part of one of these ordination councils with North Star, uh, where a gentleman from a church in the area um, had felt the call to the ministry, and, uh, and so we gathered together a council, uh, and we had a wonderful time. Um, this morning, I want to talk about calling, uh, 
is a big word uh, in church circles in particular, but not just church circles. This is one of these words that actually makes its way outside of the church, and, uh, and we use the word calling in a variety of ways. I want us to um, think uh, biblically and theologically this morning uh, about what it means to be called. We have two examples that are sitting before us. The first is Elijah calling Elisha in 1 Kings 19. And the second is some hard words from Jesus uh, about calling. So before we get there, let's begin with some prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are calling us at any and every moment. You're crying out to us. You desire to be in our presence, and you desire that we follow you. God, I pray this morning, as you cry out to us, that we hear your voice, and that we listen, and that we follow. God, we thank you for being a God that we can trust with our future. I pray this morning that you give us the faith we will need to follow you into that future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the two passages I've said, 1 Kings 19 and uh, Luke chapter 9, both have a calling in them, right? Uh, The 1 Kings 19 one is a little easier to swallow, right? So we we just read it uh, in brief. Uh, Elijah, if you recall from last week, has just come down from the mountain where he was tremendously lonely, uh, and God says, go anoint uh, Elisha, uh, and this is what he does, right? And so he goes and he finds Elisha, and what's Elisha doing? Well, he has 12 oxen, apparently, uh, that he is tending to. Now, if you're a man in the ancient world with 12 oxen, you've probably got some means, you've got some money, And this is your living. You are tending to the oxen, yes, but you're also like tending to the crops that the oxen are plowing for, and this is your livelihood. And what we find is Elijah comes to Elisha and says, well, he doesn't really say much at all, actually. He throws throws a cloak over him, uh, which is code for, hey, follow me, right? And what does Elisha do? He does say, um, and there's some ambiguity as to, as to this here. He says, let me go back and, and settle up some fares, essentially. And Elijah offers him a word that says something along the lines of, you know, what have I done to you? Which is, again, a little ambiguous. But what is not ambiguous is what happens next. What Elisha does is he takes his his livelihood, that thing that allowed him to live in life, those 12 oxen, and what does he do? He sacrifices them. He sacrifices them, right? Which is not to say he just simply slaughtered them. He did that too, right? It is to say he gave them up to God. And in doing so, he turned his back on this old life And then he follows Elijah into the future. 
And it says, the very last thing in that line says, and he assisted him, which is an interesting translation because what's really happening there is that he ministered to Elijah. He was his right-hand man. It's the same words used for Aaron with Moses. It's the same words used for Joshua with Moses. And it's used in a number of contexts uh, that are similar to that. So that's the first king story. The Luke story is a little less palatable, maybe, right? There's three parts to it. Let's, let's actually open that one up again and, and take a quick look. Make sure we're all on the same page as to what's happening here. In chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, if you've got your Bible open there, my heading says, The Cost of Following Jesus. And as we'll see, the cost is high. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. These are the things Jesus wants us to say to him, just so we're clear, right? I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And Jesus' first response is a bit of a a shot across the bow, right? It's to say, Okay, uh, he, he does not dissuade this person, uh, but he does say, um, here's part of the cost. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, right? Even the animals, they, they have homes, but the Son of Man, Jesus, has nowhere to lay his head. Essentially, I am a, a homeless man wandering this earth, and you're telling me you want to follow me wherever I go. Just know the cost ahead of time is what Jesus is saying. Continues. Second person. To another, he said, follow me. Now this time Jesus is reaching out with the classic, follow me. Right? We hear this phrase, by the way, these, these two words, any number of times throughout a Bible. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me. Well, here it is. Follow me. But the person said, uh, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. It seems like a fully reasonable uh, request. And I confess that I was listening to my daughter read this. (laughs) I couldn't help but put myself in the situation where I most certainly would want my own daughter at my funeral, right? If something terrible were to happen. It seems like a reasonable request, and Jesus responds in what has to be one of the harder sayings, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then another, third person, says, I will follow you. Here again, this person now is coming forth and saying, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Again, seemingly reasonable. I just want to go home and and one last time say goodbye. And Jesus' response is hard. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Yikes. Yikes. There's no sugarcoating this, folks, right? I don't want to pretend that there's like something under there that you're necessarily missing. Jesus is offering a very hard word. I think there are three things 
that we need to say about what it means to be called by Jesus or by Elijah or just frankly by God. And maybe the first thing is not even the one on my list here, but it is that if you are a Christian, if you are a person who says you follow Christ, then all of these things apply. We all are intended to be called and followers of Christ. So number one, when Jesus says, follow me, he intends that we have a singularity of focus, that there is a, a, a sense in which nothing else matters. And the call on our life is first and foremost this one thing, and it must remain that one thing. In another place, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, right? He says all these other things can be added, right? But seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus summons us first and foremost to himself, actually. Even before the kingdom of God, I would say Jesus first and foremost summons us to him. Not to a religion. He's not summoning us to doctrinal positions. He's not even summoning us to a job or to a task in life. And so when we talk about calling, we are first and foremost and primarily talking about Jesus calling us to himself, calling us to follow him. And so when things are unclear in life, and when you get turned upside down or your life gets turned upside down and you're searching around in the dark, true north can always be found by starting with one question, am I following Jesus? That's it. I mean, this is the singularity of focus that Jesus offers to us. Am I following Jesus? And so if your answer is, to ye is yes to that, then frankly you have what you need because he will give you what you need for that journey that, li that lies in front of the two of you. And in the hardest of times, we can have faith that he will indeed see us through because we can trust where he leads not because it's going to be easy, but because Jesus is enough. The call that Jesus is making on each and every one of our lives is primarily a call to follow him. Whatever task we are called to is a secondary kind of call. Frankly, if you are called to the task alone, it might seem impossible. It might seem out of reach for you. But you're not called to that task, first and foremost. First and foremost, you're called to follow Jesus. And then what you get is the kingdom of God adding all these other things in there. Henry Blackaby writes it this way. He says, some people say, God will never ask me to do something I can't do. I have come to the place in my life that if the assignment I sense God is giving me something, uh, give, 
back up. I have come to the place in my life that if the assignment I sense God is giving me is something that I know I can handle, I know it is probably not from God, is what he says. It seems like hyperbole to me, but I'll keep going. The kind of assignments God gives in the Bible are always God-sized, right? Bigger than whatever that person is, that human being, because our Bible's filled with human beings, uh, it's bigger than that one human being can do. It is a God-sized task. And he continues and he says, they are always beyond what people can do because he wants to demonstrate his nature, his strength, his provision, his kindness to his people and to a watching world. This is the only way the world will come to know him, Henry Blackaby. What I would want to add to Blackaby is that if our focus is on the task, and specifically the size of the task, the God-sized nature of it, we are going to fail. But if our focus is on the one who calls, the one who leads us, if our focus is on Jesus, frankly, the size and the scale of the task don't matter. As long as we are being obedient in the steps that we are directed toward, the size of the task is irrelevant. It might be small. It might be huge. Our job is not to worry about the task. It is to worry about following Christ. All right, number two. Number two, uh, a word about calling is what we all just read in the Luke 9 passage, which is that there is a high cost in the kind of calling that Jesus is calling each and every one of us to. For Elisha, the high cost was quite literally his livelihood, right? He sacrifices those 12 oxen. Uh, to put it in a different way, um, there's a phrase uh, that is connected to um, a Spanish conquistador uh, who uh, lands somewhere in the Americas in 1519, and he burns his ships when he arrives, right? Do you know this story or this phrase? Yeah. So he burns the ships, and he's saying, there's no way back now, right? We've gotten here. We've got to figure out how to make it work. We've got to figure out what it is we're all doing here. And this is essentially what Elisha does. He burns his own boats. He burns his career. He, he puts it all behind him, and he says, God, if, if you're going to make this work, you've got to make this work. Jesus, no differently, calls us to uh, a, a, a task or a, or, or a calling with a high cost to it. We saw that, right? Um, I can't think of a better person who embodied what it means to, uh, to not just receive the call, but to, to heed the call of the high cost of God than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? He has uh, a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. In it, he says this. He talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. I've certainly quoted Bonhoeffer before, but I will throughout the rest of my life because there is tremendous amount of wisdom here. 
By the way, if you don't know Bonhoeffer's life, uh, he was killed uh, in the Nazi concentration camps for what he believed uh, and as a modern-day martyr for the faith. Anyway, he says this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, however, he says, is the treasure that is hidden in the field, and for the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. There is a high cost to our calling. The third thing I want to say about calling is that a true calling reorients all prior priorities. A true calling reorients all prior priorities. Whatever you used to think was important and however you would rank those, once you have a true calling in your life, and I mean that in the, the small sense of Christ's calling and what I'll get to in a minute, uh, a larger sense of, of, or maybe it's not larger, a different sense of calling. A true calling reorients all prior priorities. We see this in Luke 9 in some pretty hard ways, particularly with the second and the third of the two people that Jesus meets with. There's the person who wants to attend his father's funeral, and there's the person who just simply wants to go say goodbye to friends, and Jesus says, your priorities need to be different, right? And there's no way around the difficulty of these statements, but the message is clear. A true calling reorients all prior priorities. This week I heard a story uh, about a, um, a murder in New York City in the early 60s. In this story, which is true, um, the courts were trying to decide whether or not um, the 30 people who witnessed it happen and stood by and did nothing, whether they are somehow obligated uh, in this case, right? Uh, the author who is telling the story uh, is, a, um, is a Catholic priest, uh, and so he then spins it as a sense of like, well, Christians, we definitely have an obligation if we were to uh, encounter something like that. Whether or not the court of law says we have an obligation, we have an obligation, right? And the way this gentleman put it was that he, he, he talked about it in terms of uh, being consecrated or, or baptized uh, and, and in doing so, you are uh, everything you thought was important in that moment is suddenly shoved aside for the one thing that's like really important. 
and it's essentially what I'm talking about this morning with calling, and that everything we thought was important then gets sidelined for the one thing that is important. And so those 30 people who were going about their day, many of them had really important things to do, no doubt, right? Uh, they, they were probably shopping for their groceries. They were probably picking up kids at school. Uh, who knows, maybe a pastor was out there and had to make a, a hospital visit to somebody. Or uh, you can name the important thing that was going on. Well, the second that they see someone being assaulted uh, and at death or near death, right, everything changes, <laughs> All those other things lessen in priority, and there's like one thing, one thing matters in that moment. This is what Jesus is saying in Luke 9. When you hear the call on your life, that is the one thing that matters, and every other thing then becomes a lesser priority. The last thing I want to talk about is uh, that what Jesus is doing here opens up two senses of what it means to be called. Um, this is coming from a book I read about 20 years ago by Os Guinness called The Call. Uh, I had to read it for seminary. And in it, he talks about a primary calling and a secondary calling. I think this is really important for all of us to understand and to distinguish between these two things. The church, everybody has a primary calling. And the primary calling is what we've been talking about today. The church, by the way, uh, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia, it's one word. I turn it into two because it means to be called out. Quite literally, the early church is telling us we are all called out, right? And so Jesus has called each and every one of us to these three things that I've talked about to this point. And that primary calling should change how we walk through the world. It is something we must heed. And if we are going to live out of costly grace instead of cheap grace, then we must abide by it. But there is this secondary calling. And the secondary calling, according to Os Guinness, uh, is, is actually quite helpful for most of you. See, most of you in the pews are not called uh, to a sense of ministry, maybe. But you do actually have your own kind of calling. And uh, while the, the, the world of work can talk about occupations... As Christians, we should be talking about vocation. We're not just interested in what God would have occupy our time on a day-to-day -day basis. We want to talk about what are we called to. What, what, vocare is a word that means to be called. It's a good Latin word. What is our vocation, right? To talk about this, Dorothy Sayers writes about vocation in this way, and I find it helpful. A vocation is seen not primarily as a thing one does to live, which, if you're beyond, being honest, I, is probably what a lot of us do on a regular basis. We, 
This is the thing we do to live. A vocation is not, however, primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. Vocation is, or should be, the full expression of the worker's gifts, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction, and the medium in which he offers himself or herself to God. So that task you take up on a daily basis, maybe you get paid for it, maybe you're at home with kids, maybe you're in school studying. Whatever that task is that you take up on a daily basis, if you're coming to it with a sense of gifting, if you're finding spiritual and mental and bodily satisfaction, and this becomes the medium in which you offer yourself to God, then you are living out of vocation, out of calling. How do you know what your calling is? This is the big question, right? And frankly, it's a daunting question, particularly for young people. Uh, I would have you know, though, the question actually continues through life. I think most of the people in the pews would, uh, would tell you this is not a quest that that ends anytime soon. And I, I wouldn't want you young people to think that you've got to figure it out by 12th grade so that you can jump into college and, and do the exact right thing to make sure that you're doing your calling, right? Calling I take to be um, a lifelong process in the same way that coming to understand who God made you to be is a lifelong process, right? Who I am my strengths, my passions, my giftings, frankly, my weaknesses, my failures, my, the, the sin that kind of just, I, I have trouble pulling out. Like all of those things matter when it comes to who I am and my calling. And if I can show up in the world in a way that embodies who God made me to be and then attack some kind of thing uh, for God's glory, and that is the key, for God's glory, right? Then I am living a sense of calling in this world. So how do I know? How do I know what that secondary vocation is? Just got five things, and I will zip through them, I promise. One, listen and seek. Listen and seek. Your time with Jesus is really important. Right, if God is calling us, if Jesus is calling us to follow him, well then following him involves some time in the word, it involves time in prayer, and it involves a relationship. Two, talk with trusted friends and mentors. This requires having people who are trusted friends and mentors in your life, right? Talk to people. When this gentleman that I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago came to the council, uh, one of the questions is, how do you know you've been called? And his answer was, one of them anyway, this person and this person and this person and this person, they all said to me, you need to be a pastor, right? Well, that is talking to friends and mentors who see something in you 
and they say, yeah, this is something you're designed to do. This is something you're good at. This is something you excel at, and you can honor God through this. Uh, there's a guy named Parker Palmer uh, who is, he, he writes a lot actually about, um, about calling and vocation, this sort of thing. And uh, he's a Quaker though, so he does this weird thing called a clarity, what is it called? A clarity committee, that's it, <laughs> uh, in which he, he had been offered a, a presidency at a, um, at a college or university somewhere. And so he calls together this group of people, and the, the intention is to say, all right, this, this group is supposed to ask him uh, a thousand and one different questions about like, this, this call that he's been called to. And so they, they keep peppering him with questions like, uh, why do you want to be a college president? And then he answers, and he's like, well, I don't, I don't want to give up my summers, or I don't want to do this, or I, I really don't want to fundraise. And they kind of come back, and they're like, no, but why do, you, why do you want, why are you feeling called to this? And then he says, ah, but I don't want to do this, and I don't want to do that. And finally, one of the guys, like, looks at him, and he's like, yeah, but why do you want to be a college president? And he pauses. And he's feeling awkward inside because he knows the answer he's about to give is a terrible one. And he says, I guess it'd just be nice to see my paper, my, my, my picture in the paper with college president underneath it. <laughs> and there's a silence in the room because everybody knows this is a terrible answer, right? This is not a calling. This in no way is embodying who he has been made to be. And, and, and this is not what he should do with his life. It, it goes against the grain of everything that he is. And one wise gentleman, after some silence, says, Parker, isn't there an easier way to get your picture in the paper? <laughs> Which there is, right? And the point is, this is not who God designed him to be. And so as we flesh out, like, what is my calling in life? What am I supposed to do with this one precious life I've been given? Engage friends. Engage family. Engage those people who know you best, who know the profession that you might be interested in best, and ask them, is this something I could do? What do you see in me? Number three, know your gifts and lean into them, but also know that God equips the called. You might have heard it said before, uh, God doesn't call the equipped, God equips the called, which I think is kind of a half-truth. It's certainly true that God equips the called. That part is undoubtable in my mind. I do think, however, God often calls people who at least have certain giftings or, or inclinations. They certainly have passions for something. And so there's a combination there. Part of it is who you are and who God has designed you to be. Who God has designed your heart to be, your mind to be, your soul to be. And then along the way, you can trust that if this is a path that God is leading you toward, he will give you the equipment to make it work because that is the God we serve, a God we can trust into our future. 
Oz Guinness, again, the guy who wrote the call, says, calling is not only a matter of being and doing what we are, but also becoming what we are not yet, but are called by God to be. This I have experienced firsthand. I I think most of us in this room have. You enter a task not fully equipped to do the job, And then over time, God is calling you into something greater, both for the thing itself and for you. And watching God do that work in your life is one of the most beautiful things about life. And so if we walk into something needing to be the perfect person for the perfect time, you're going to be sorely disappointed or more likely you're going to be given opportunities in which you live a shrunken version of what God really wants to do in your life. Number four, sometimes we must simply step out in faith. We must not be afraid to fail. And if we do fail, we can evaluate and ask ourselves, am I still called here? Is God still leading Am I still following the footsteps of Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then you pick yourself up, you wipe off the dust, and you keep walking. Now, number five, repeat and recycle. <laughs> Listen and seek. Talk to trusted friends. Know your gifts and lean into them. Step out in faith. Repeat and recycle. And do it again and again and again. There's a primary calling that we are all called to, and that is to follow Christ with everything we've got. And then in each of you, God has designed you in such a way that he's calling you into his service in the world in whatever way God has made you to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You are a good God, and we can trust you. We can trust you with our very lives. And so, God, this morning, my prayer is that someone in this room needs to trust you again, needs to walk in faith, knowing that wherever it is you lead is the right place to be. And not because it's the easy path or not because it's the path that leads to the most success in a worldly sense, but because it's the path you have allotted for us. God, I pray this morning that you continue to do a work in us, continue to speak to us. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts to take communion, I pray that you cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that the cross be enough, and that we lay ourselves before you once again. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.